This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Oh, so good to be with you guys. Uh, excited for tonight. And uh, hey, I want to uh, give a special thanks to Khalid who led us tonight. Can we thank him? The, the whole McKinley family's here. You guys are the best. Just the most precious family. If you get a chance to meet them after service, please do give them a hug. Um, when we uh, planted Light Church last year, Khalid took over uh, my position at Faith Community Church being the worship leader there. So. We got to work together for a little bit, and then he took over that spot, and is just this incredible uh, worship leader, as you guys can tell, but just his sensitivity to wanting to, to know what God is up to in a specific moment, in a specific space, is so amazing. So, I man, I, I just could have worshiped all night long. Um, and so we, uh, man, glad you guys are here. I know there's a lot of new faces tonight, a lot of new names got to meet. We're so thankful you're here, and like Josh said, please just let us know. We'd love to just kind of stay in contact with you. But it's a good night to come because we are brand new series, brand new theme. It's actually going to be what we're going to be focusing on for the year. It's called Heart Renovation. And we talked about how last week, how when Jesus shows up in our lives, the goal is not just for us to go from death to life and to, to receive salvation. Obviously, that is a crucial part, but that's not the end. It's not a moment. We enter into a process where he desires for that new heart that we have to be formed into his heart, to be changed and shaped into looking more and more like Jesus. So we thought, what was the better focus for us that at the end of 2019, someone could look at you and be like, man, there's something about you. Maybe they can't articulate it, but what they're saying is, man, they, you look more like Jesus, the love the sacrificial, humble nature that Jesus possessed is alive in you. And so with this idea of heart renovation and any renovation at all, there's a process that always under, that goes uh, underway. And so we, we talked about how before you ever get into the building and the demolition and the rebuilding and the decorating, the very first thing that happens, which is our focus for the month of January, is design. It, 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 we talked about how there are renderings that happen. And so the whole month of January, we're trying to get a heart rendering. What is it that God is wanting to renovate? What is the end goal? What is the vision in God's heart for you and I's heart if we let him have his way? So before we just begin to start in the process and trying to let him change us and to shape us, we need to know where we're being changed and shaped into because if not, we get into trouble. For example, uh, a few years ago, my kids uh, were just begging for a playhouse, and they accomplished some big feat. I forget. It was, wasn't important. But it was important to them. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> graduating kindergarten or something. Um, which, by the way, really, you guys know that's a thing, kindergarten graduations. And there's not another one until you're in, like, eighth grade. Why kindergarten? What have you done in your life? So anyway, sorry. I'm still bitter because we had to sh cut our trip to Ireland short because my daughter's kindergarten graduation, and I still can't get it to this day. Anyways, I'm going off script. Uh, 
Anyways, we, we, get, we, go, we go to Costco, we buy them a playhouse, and I'm just thankful it's not an Ikea playhouse because Ikea furniture makes me lose my mind. And we take it home, but it's honestly worse than Ikea furniture. There's hundreds, like not, not exactly, hundreds of pieces laid out in my backyard. And I'm the least handy person. I keep talking about this. I'm like, why would you do this to me, God? And... Uh, and so I'm laying it out, and my kids are just like, just stoked out of their mind. They're like, oh my gosh, we're gonna, we got a playhouse. Like, Dad, how long is it going to take? Like, 10 minutes? And I'm like, like, two weeks. Like, this is, this is not happening anytime fast. True, true story. I mean, I think it looking, took me like four or five days with help to put this thing together. And it's like four feet, ha- four feet tall. So anyways, in the process, like, like most guys, at least in my experience, I read the instructions until I come to the point where I got it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, guys aren't opposed to directions until they know what's going on. They read enough just to be like, okay, (laughs) I'll take you from here. And I got to that moment, and so I start putting the house together, and, and like, bam, this thing is made. It's awesome. It's epic. And my kids come out. Jen comes out. I'm like, the playhouse is ready. And my kids are like, yeah. And Jen looks, and there's like a pile of like extra supplies um, next to the house. And she's like, what are, what are those? And I'm like, oh, those are extra pieces. <laughs> they put them in the box in case you need them. And she's like, that's a lot of extra pieces. Are you sure? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, it, look at it. It's standing. And, she's, and she does something, you know, just loving mom. She grabs the box and puts it up, and she's like, why doesn't it look like the picture? <laughs> I'm like, where's your imagination? That, that, was a, that was a suggestion of what it could look like. Mine looks better, right? Open floor plan, like minimalist. It's a thing right now. You wouldn't, under, you wouldn't understand. And <laughs> so I have to go backwards take some things apart, put in like the windows and stuff like that. <laughs> but I can't help but think that, that maybe that's what's happened to some of our hearts is we, we go to church a few times, right? Or maybe you grew up in church and you read your Bible and, and you, you kind of get the Jesus thing. So you, you know what we do? We're like, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take it from here. And, and I think that this year God might just want uh, to be lifting up the box to us and being like, does that look like this? Is that, is that what I had in mind? And here's the amazing thing. That picture, that, that picture on the box we're trying to replicate is not something we're trying to guess at. You see, it is explicitly given to us in the person of Jesus. We are trying, not trying, I should say that. We are being formed into an image that is not accidental, that is not up for our interpretation. It was given to us clearly and powerfully through the person of Jesus. And so for this year, would we just take a look in the mirror, take a look at the life of Jesus, which we'll be studying a lot of over the next few months, and just begin to look, does my heart look like the picture on the box? Does my heart look like the heart of Christ? Because if we're honest with ourselves, Chances are there are some things that, that have gone well that have been formed and shaped by Christ and His Holy Spirit. And there's also some probably things that we've added on or some things that we have just kind of left to the side. And 
if we're not careful, what we can happen is we can take a look at ourselves, compare ourselves to some other people and be like, oh, I'm, I think I'm good. I think I'm, I'm where I should be. And, and I wanted to kind of share an illustration. One of my favorite authors is this guy named Scott McKnight. He's a brilliant theologian and writes a ton on the kingdom of God and Sermon on the Mount. And, and he's a professor out in the Midwest. And every year he does this exercise with his students where he invites the new students to come in and he gives them this survey and he asks them, Who, what is Jesus like? And he asks some really relevant questions. Like if Jesus were alive today, uh, would he be an extrovert or an introvert, right? Would, what would he be on the Enneagram? What kind of, what number is Jesus, right? What is, um, is, he a, is he a Democrat or a Republican? And just ask all these questions and to the best of your ability, you answer who you think Jesus would be like if you were around today. The next day he gives a similar survey, but he asks about you, changes the wording a little bit, and he gives the two tests and he compares the students' answers of what they think Jesus is like versus their own answers, and without fail and almost without exception, people begin to start thinking that Jesus is just like them. Listen, listen to his quote. He says, the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. Voltaire says, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. And it's true, isn't it? It's true. I mean, when, I, when there's something that gets me like righteously angry, you know, the things like injustice, you know, and you know what I mean? The thing I'm like, oh, God must be furious at this. And when things are just kind of like, oh, you know, that's not great, but it's not that big of a deal. I'm sure Jesus is not, he doesn't really care that much about that. The things that I think are, are massively important, I assume that they're massively important to God. And the things that I've just kind of brushed off, I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, I should probably care, but I don't. I'm sure Jesus knows my heart. Now, all of us are in this process we, where we are, if we're not careful, we are shaping Jesus into our image rather than being shaped into his. And that's the whole purpose of this year. 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Apostle Paul writes to this church he planted a couple thousand years ago, and he writes about the Holy Spirit's role and what he does when he comes and brings freedom. It's a really popular verse. and says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... Anyone? Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We love that verse. We write songs about that verse. This is a beautiful, powerful sentence, but <coughs> we rarely see what it's attached to. L listen to what Paul says. This is why the Holy Spirit brings freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, meaning there's nothing blocking us, there's nothing hiding us, contemplate or think about the Lord's glory and are being transformed, the Greek word metamorphi, where we get our word metamorphosis, we are being changed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I mean, this is, this is amazing. He's talking about this, the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. As he comes, and with unveiled faces, there's nothing stopping us from seeing accurately who Jesus is. He comes, and as we, as we contemplate, as we think about who Jesus is, we begin to be transformed. Our hearts shift to become more and more into his image. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. But if we're not careful, 
we will start becoming something whether we like it or not. So there's this word that we're going to be using throughout the year called spiritual formation. And spiritual formation uh, could also be used for discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus, sanctification, all these fancy words. But all this means is your inner person is being formed. So a couple of things. This is, this is from um, John Mark Comer, the pastor up in, uh, up in Portland. He, he has this list of passive spiritual formation. So these are things that when you wake up in the morning, these things are happening to you whether you like it or not. And you're like, well, I don't know what I think about spiritual formation. Well, your spirit's being formed by something, someone. So these are things that are constantly happening to us, and we're going to be revisiting these in a couple weeks, whether we like it or not. Number one, the stories we believe. Our inner belief, our worldview, the things of what we believe is right and wrong, the things that define our values and passions. The second thing are the habits that we live into, the little choices we make again and again that become repetitious and patterns in our lives and ultimately form who you are today. All, all you are today are the thousands of choices you made every day up to this point. So the habits that we live into form us. Uh, relationships we're involved in, the people around us form us, whether we like it or not. I mean, your coworkers, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your neighbor, uh, your teachers are all forming you. As a matter of fact, you see that 90% of who we are is made up by the time we're five. That freaks me out as a parent of young children. God have grace. Um, and fourthly, the environment we call home. So these, these are all factors that are pressing in on our spirit, forming our, our inner person, who we are. And if we're not careful, we will become the result of our culture. We will become the result of our peers. We will become the results, um, ultimately, of the world. And what God is inviting us into through the work of the Holy Spirit is for us to not show up and become someone on accident but to be formed more and more into the most beautiful, purposeful human that ever existed, and that's Jesus Christ. And he's calling us into, into, that, into that process. <coughs> so tonight, we, we have um, maybe one of the most important questions that we could ask is if we're being made and formed into Christ's image, what is that image? And when I started preparing for this week's uh, message I found my head spinning because I just started thinking about the, the, the thing, the beautiful things, dozens of things, hundreds of things that Jesus is. And I'm like, how, how is this going to fit into a sermon? And so I, I feel like the Lord led me in a different direction. Rather than trying to create an exhaustive list of all that Jesus is, which would take me the rest of my life and into eternity, let's do what Jesus did and let's just make this simple. Let's try and focus in on one thing. One thing that Jesus was at his core, that he is asking us to become at our core, that us at our most mature phase of our faith, we should end up like this. And you ready for this? If you're taking notes, here's the one word note for tonight. It's the word beloved. When we look at the life of Christ, his identity, his core beliefs, what he lived out of, what he modeled, what drew him to people, it's the idea of the beloved. Um, a matter of fact, this was, was so true that one of his apprentices took on that title for himself. John, uh, who wrote one of the Gospels, one of the biographies, and ended up writing some other letters and wrote Revelation. 
actually gave himself that title. He is John the Beloved. And whenever, when he writes his biography and he writes about himself, he says, you know, the one that Jesus loved. <laughs> what a great title, right? Like if I'm going to write myself into a story, I want that. <laughs> the one Jesus really likes. <laughs> so this is John's title for himself, right? The one that Jesus loved, the Beloved, John the Beloved. And as he writes a letter years later to one of the churches that he's pastoring, this is what he says kind of about the core of who this God is, who we're being formed into. This is in 1 John 4, 7 through 11. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, here it is, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the ransom for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I mean, if you're going to like hang out on a few verses, those are some good ones. I mean, I love how John just summarized it. Hey, God is love. We should love one another, but we have to understand love comes from God. And this love was made manifest through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should love one another. It all comes back. Do you know you are the beloved of God? You cannot function in your purpose and in human flourishing unless you get that. But we self-sabotage ourselves, right? We, we believe these lies deep within ourselves that is, is ruining us. So we live in, in, in fear and insecurity and we don't step into who God has called us to be. And so I think the first order of business here, if we're talking about the design, what's on the box the idea are you do you know you're the beloved you are loved by God and do not mistake this just because this might be common that you have somehow need some other information you cannot move beyond the deep reality that we need to come back to again and again that we are loved deeply cherished cared for by God Matter of fact, Jesus doesn't only say this, he models it. When you read the Gospels, you don't have Jesus do one miracle. We don't see one miracle in Jesus' life show up until something happens to him. He's baptized and he comes out of the waters as the heavens open up and the Father's voice speaks over his son. This is my beloved son who I am well pleased. In the moment, the very beginning, at the core of Jesus' ministry, everything stems out of this place that he knows that the Father loves him. It's why he lived the life he lived. It's why he died the death he died. And if we are to live the lives we are supposed to live, it begins here. It begins with us understanding the same way Jesus needed to hear it. We need to hear it again and again. We are the beloved. So I'm thinking about scripture i'm thinking about all all of the stories i could tell dozens just came to my mind of when jesus just shows love he just oozes out love from this place of understanding that he is the beloved but tonight uh we're going to be focusing on one story in particular and that's luke chapter 7 you can turn there with me if you'd like luke chapter 7 we start in verse 36 to 50 and my hope is as i 
as we read this story and as we kind of retell it together, that we'd find ourselves in the story somewhere. We'd connect with one of the characters and we would ultimately let that help shape and form us and our own identity as the beloved. <coughs> Luke 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, and again, if you're new, Pharisees would have been kind of the religious elite of the day, the pastors, the priests, the bishops of that day, people were highly educated, tons of power and influence. So one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so that he's not saying this out loud, he's thinking this in his head, right? If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. How freaky is that? <laughs> Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 dinars, a day's wage, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus says. He's talking with Simon. Then he turned to the woman, but said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That Greek word saved, sozo, means you've been made whole. Go in shalom. Go in peace. I mean, what a provocative story. And just for us to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of these people. In that day, having dinner around a table was not just a kind of a casual, relational thing. Uh, most of the times, this was a social move. So who you had dinner with mattered because who came over for dinner said something about you, what you believed in, who you approved of, what kind of power plays you were trying to make and, and kind of the socio-political environment of the day. So this very religious uh, kind of pious person invites Jesus to come. He, he answers the invitation. He's sitting there probably amongst other religious rulers of that day. And he's sitting around a table. Now don't imagine chairs around a table, but imagine the table's closer to the floor and that you are leaning in on your side, maybe on your elbow, eating with your hands, and your feet of every one of the guests is facing outwards. And as, the, and as you go outwards in the room, there would have been a single-story home, most likely, 
and there would have been open windows that the entire community can come and watch who's having dinner. It's like a, dinner was a spectator sport, right? It was the UFC of the day. Like, what's going on, right? What kind of debates are happening? So there's, there's a crowd gathered watching these people eat, right? Doesn't that make, does that make you feel uncomfortable at all? Like, you're just like, come on, let me have my hummus. But they're having dinner, and all of a sudden, this woman, most likely a prostitute, a sinful woman, comes in and she, she needs to go to Jesus because she knows that everything that her heart is longing for will not be found in the world around her. But she thinks, just, just maybe if I can get to Jesus, then everything will be made right. This is a risky move because as she does and she goes in and she's touching people, she's breaking all sorts of social norms and religious norms and religious laws. And she finds herself at the feet of Jesus, which would have been illegal for a woman to take that position. And then she goes and has the audacity to take her hair, which would have been her, her most glorious and also her most exotic part of who she was. And she starts rubbing the dirt off of Jesus' feet with her tears. She takes this jar and pours it out on Jesus' feet. The room is now filled with this perfume. And you can imagine Simon the Pharisee being, what is happening to my dinner party? This was not on the agenda. And, and, and so he's, in his, like all of us, in his mind, he's like, man, what is going on right now? And he's just thinking, if Jesus knew who this person was, oh my gosh. And Jesus answers him. Simon, and begins to tell these parables and starts to get to his heart. And then he comes to this place where he's looking at the woman and he's talking to Simon and he asks him this piercing question that I hear ringing in my own soul. Simon, do you see this woman? Because the implied answer there is you don't see her. You see a problem. You see an interruption. You see a liability in your house. I see a beloved person. She's done what you haven't done for me. A matter of fact, as she pours perfume on that, most scholars would believe that was probably about a year's worth of salary. And most likely that would have been given to her by her parents, whoever they were in the picture for her bride price or her dowry so that someday she could get married. So as she pours this on the feet of Jesus, she's not just making the room smell good, she's pouring out her future on the feet of Christ. And Jesus looks at her and sees her when no one else did. And he loves this oppressed person. What a, what a beautiful picture of the beloved looking upon the beloved and this radical thing. But let's not miss, there's something else that's happening here as well. Remember the first verse. As the Pharisee invited Jesus to have, him, to have dinner with him and he went to his house. See, I, for me, I get so caught up in this story that Jesus is defending the oppressed that I forget that he was sharing a socially intimate setting with the oppressor. And that makes me uncomfortable because I want Jesus to be like me. And I always think that I'm against the oppressor and I'm for the oppressed. But I serve a God who just loves them both. 
Now he gives them different things. For the, for the oppressed, for, in his loving overflow of his heart, he gives her healing and redemption and value. And as he loves this selfish, prideful, blind religious leader, in love he gives him truth. He's at his table. This is an intimate acceptance to an invitation. He's here with him. And I, and I look at that and I look at Jesus and I, and I think about myself in this scenario and amongst these, and amongst these characters. I, I, I long to be Jesus in there, but the reality is I know that I find myself in the woman's shoes. That if I'm honest with myself, I spend so much time trying to to will myself and perform in such a way that I will appear and look righteous. But at the core of who I am, if it was not for Jesus, I would be a wreck. And at the same time, as much as I find myself angry at the presser, how oftentimes do I use who I am to exert myself over other people and to look down upon them because it makes me feel more secure about who I am because really what that is is fear. Both of these people needed love in different ways, but Jesus gave it to both of them in the same space. And I think it's a call for us. It's a call for us to begin to look at the box that we're trying to design. What is the heart supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like Jesus. And if it's going to look like Jesus, it needs to look like love. Radical, audacious, uncomfortable, provocative love that begins in you and then spills out to everyone else. Henry Nouwen, who's, who's another one of my favorite authors, uh, taught at Notre Dame. He, um, he's written tons of books. He's just, just brilliant, brilliant man. And spent, decided to spend the rest of his days before he died. Moved up to Canada and spent his days living in a home for children and adults who needed special assistance because of different mental disabilities or physical disabilities. And this is how he spent the remainder of his days and he would teach classes. And he would talk about Jesus and he would talk about Jesus coming again and returning and our new heavenly bodies. And there's a, there's a story by Henry Nouwen as he's, as he's there in that environment and he notices that the windows are beginning to be dirty and he goes to the facilities, outraged. He's like, why isn't this clean? This, this, this facility should be spotless. We should treat these people. It's kind of rants. And the, the person who's running the facilities looks at him and says, well, we clean the windows every day. But ever since you told them that Jesus is coming back, most of the people spend their time looking out the window. He tells these beautiful stories of his time there. And as he's there, he, he writes some of his most incredible work. I just wanted to read you a few of his quotes when he talks about, about this tension between us knowing that we are the beloved or rejecting ourselves and self-rejection and self-harm and this, this war that is constantly going on in our hearts and how it begins. It has to begin with us knowing the love of Christ. <clears throat> this is what he says, Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, 
but their seductive qualities often comes from the way they are a part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I am rejected, left alone or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I'm a nobody. My dark side says I'm no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Now listen to this last nine. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Being the beloved constitutes the core conviction, the core truth of our existence. I mean, what, what great news. And this is beyond just self-help or self-care. I hope you guys are understanding. No, no, this is, this is gospel. This is us not being able to love until we have been loved first. This is understanding that if we are to become mature like Christ, we have to begin in understanding we have to receive this reality that we are the beloved. But here's, but here's two things. Number one, it is a moment and it's a process. The moment you receive it, your heart is open to the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. Christ loves me. He died for me. He raised again. He's, he's ransomed my life. He's given me a new heart. I mean, that is a moment, right, where we understand we are the beloved of Christ. And at the same time, it is so much more than just a moment. It is our becoming. It is our life. And we are constantly being formed into that truth and into that deep reality. In his life, I'm sorry, in his book, Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen also writes, if it is true that we not only are the beloved, but also have to become the beloved, if it is true that we not only are children of God, but also have to become children of God, if it is true that we not only are brothers and sisters, but also have to become brothers and sisters, if at all this is true, how then can we get a grip up on this process of becoming? Because the spiritual life is not simply a way of being, but also a way of becoming. What then is the nature of this becoming? I love the question. This is, this is something we're being formed into. We're being formed into who we already are. This is why Paul in Ephesians 4.1 says, live a life worthy of the calling you've already received. You've already been called beloved. Live a life worthy of that call, of that identity. I'm going to invite Khalid to come, to come up here. Play a little bit. If, if, uh, maybe if we can just, just go into that song again to, to worship you, I live. If we can just take a moment. Because here, here's the tension, right? Here, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where I have to get out of the way is what happens next has to be a miracle. Because so many of us are battling right now voices in our head, the, the kind of the, 
family of origin we came from, lies that have been embedded deep in our heart. And hearing a sermon is not enough to change you, but God is enough to change you. We have to have moment and space right now just to let the Holy Spirit come and let this truth, this reality that we are the beloved hit us, sink in. And it may happen in the next few minutes, it might happen when you come home, and it might happen over the next year. But would we begin tonight to open our hearts up to, to be receptive to who Jesus is and what he wants for us is ultimately for us to know and to become and live into the reality we are his beloved.